0: Welcome, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. And this is episode 211 an update on anti corruption uh, issues in the global marketplace here. And uh, I'm glad to have. Um, Scott Ratek from uh, Transparency International for an interview. Uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Scott is just terrific uh, from Transparency International. I'll give you sort of the insider view from Washington, D.C. in terms of policies, resources, uh, in where the global battle uh, against corruption is going. Uh, So I hope you'll uh, enjoy the interview. Um, before we get started, how about a word from our sponsor, Steel Compliance?
1: Steel Compliance is the global leader in compliance and ethics management. Steel's compliance and ethics platform is comprehensive, robust, and easy to use to promote a company's culture of compliance. Steel partners with the world's largest, most respected companies to deliver compliance products and services that help organizations embrace a culture of compliance while protecting their brand. Building an ethical culture is a complex undertaking that requires a detailed understanding of the global compliance environment, considerable time, and specialized expertise. Steele's end-to-end ethics and compliance platform is designed to provide compliance officers with the solutions they need to proactively address changing regulatory and reputational risks. Steele's ethics and compliance automated platform offers critical functions designed to promote a speak-up culture to advance employee engagement, reporting, and incident management. Investigate promptly and fairly potential incidents to ensure compliance with your organization's code of conduct and applicable laws and regulations, including anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, antitrust, sanctions, cybersecurity, and data privacy. Manage your organization's compliance policies and procedures to ensure that policies are updated and disseminated effectively so that employees understand your organization's compliance requirements. Educate and engage your organization to promote understanding in how your compliance program applies to day-to-day operations. And evaluate and monitor your organization's business partners, vendors, suppliers, and customers to mitigate risk and ensure adherence to your organization's ethics and compliance requirements. To learn more about Steel's Compliance Solutions, please contact us at email steelglobal.com or call 415-692-5000.
0: Well, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm really excited to have uh, Scott Graytech back with us from Transparency uh, International. Uh, Scott is the Director of Advocacy, and I always welcome Scott joining us on the podcast because he uh, has everything with anti-corruption. I wasn't gonna say corruption, Scott, uh, but anti-corruption. Yeah, <laughs> he has everything on anti-corruption. That's going on in Washington, and even globally he's on top of a lot of interesting issues, so I wanted to welcome you, Scott, and thank you for coming back uh, with us and I know the listeners will be really interested to hear what's going on in this uh, exciting field right now
2: It's great to be with you thanks Michael
0: well, well, and I you know if you follow my uh, blog and I've written about this and actually even done a separate podcast on this, but I think Scott, and you can bring us your perspective on this. The, the Biden administration issued early on the National Security Study Memo, uh, which talks about um, the importance of anti-corruption being a national in the national security interest. I see this as hugely important, but can you give us the perspective, sort of from the anti-corruption? you know, feel that you are
2: a leader and sort of what's your perspective on that? So I agree that this is a high watermark for engagement from uh, the administration and hopefully for all important agencies and departments of the US government. Um, you know, big picture, this memorandum came out in early June. It's about a thousand words long. And it does two things substantively. So, as you mentioned, it designates the fight against corruption as a core national security interest. I think that, in and of itself, we know it's novel. It's never been done before. It elevates the issue as far as a national security priority, you know, centering it in something that's in a different issue set for the United States than it's traditionally been. Corruption is typically or historically been more about a blend of economic and humanitarian issues. Now it is squarely in the national security camp. And we can talk about some of the exciting consequences of that designation in a bit when we talk about Congress. But the other thing that it does is it it directs the agencies and departments of the US government to make recommendations that will bolster the ability of the United States to go after corruption. So it's basically broken into a statement of policy, and it talks about an interagency review where they'll, they'll have until December 20th uh, to release a review, maybe internal, maybe public, about what the United States can do to go after corruption in a bunch of different ways. And it kind of hits all the essentials. Why is corruption a problem? It corrodes public trust. It distorts markets. It exacerbates extremism and migration around the world. But importantly, it also looks inward. It talks about Mm -hmm. the financial costs of corruption, and it talks about the United States role in it, which, of course, as the Pandora Papers just showed us last week, the role that U.S. real estate and trusts and professional service uh, enablers like lawyers and corporate formation agents and uh, accountants here in the United States are playing to allow dirty money to get into our financial system. And so it it basically calls to task the United States and other democracies to deal with their role in how corruption works. Um, And what I thought really stuck out about the memo as well is it gives a strong justification for why prioritizing corruption right now fundamentally matters to the United States. It's basically saying that the US can secure a critical advantage for itself and other democracies by fighting corruption. And I think it's pretty clear in the era of global competitiveness that we're with now who it's talking about getting a critical advantage over by investing and fighting corruption.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, obviously, there's an unspoken, you know, target there. Um, But you know, what's and you raised a really, you know, interesting set of issues, at least. So let me try to unpack some of these. One is, And I was at the Justice Department and I, you know, I participated in some of the interagency processes. And I think that's a huge, huge opportunity um, to get all of the agencies sort of coordinated on a policy approach and and objectives. And to me, the ultimate thing here is resources. You know, and I say you can always tell what the government's going to do when you see the resources move. So like I watch DOJ's, you know, FCPA unit, when they get more bodies there, where FBI agents are assigned to more, you know, squads for anti-corruption, I know more cases are gonna come. And I think this interagency process, uh, Scott, is huge. And you say it ends by December 20th. Um, But if you could sort of address that and how important that is, but also like, there's supposed to be, you know, this summit for democracy. And can you explain that? And when that's supposed to happen? And what do you expect to come out of that as well? So I'll give you two two questions there, really.
2: Right. And I, I think you plant the right flag. The last time that the US government that I can remember has spoke about corruption as this high of a concern was back in 2010, when former Attorney General Eric Holder announced the creation of the Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Initiative. Right, he talked right. about how the Obama administration would be treating anti-corruption as a quote-unquote top priority. But it has certainly never been elevated to a core national security interest, and has certainly never had an interagency review to provide a whole of government, the resourcing, and the staffing. I mean, the outcomes that this interagency review It started on on June 3rd, it's going to end 200 days later, my math says December 20th, but it calls on the government to bolster its ability to do a whole host of things. Uh, It's asking it to talk about how it can ferret out illicit funds that make it way into the United States, how it can go after foreign corrupt actors abroad, um, how it can support democratic institutions in both the United States and overseas, how it can work better with civil society and the media, how it can create uh, partnerships with private industry. I mean, it's a very ambitious, expansive set of goals. And you know where the summit for democracy comes into play is this is something that was announced uh, by you know then presidential candidate Joe Biden, uh, I believe in the spring of 2020, and mm-hmm. he feels moving on this in the first few months of his administration they finally settled on uh, the first set of dates. It was initially just gonna be one-time convening, uh, so folks thought. Now there's going to be two phases. And so the first phase is gonna be this December 9th and 10th. Uh, This is gonna be a virtual convening, obviously with COVID still affecting so much of the world. It's going to be where there are a lot of high-level meetings between government officials, There will be events uh, for civil society and and private industry to partake in panels and whatnot as sort of side events to the summit. But the focus on the first half is to deal with establishing commitments. And corruption has been identified as one of the three big pillars of this entire summit. It's basically fighting corruption, defending against authoritarianism, and advancing human rights. And so corruption is squarely on the menu And it's going to be, you know, basically uh, a call to arms for the the world's democracies and, and, you know, maybe some emerging or struggling democracies as well to get together and have a platform and an agenda to be able to renew democracy writ large. And corruption is front and center as one of the three big pillars for that. The flip side to this, you know, the first convening takes place in December would be that there'll be about a year until uh, the second phase of the summit, and the idea here is that folks will check in and see of those commitments uh, that were agreed on or introduced um, this December to see how you know countries including the United States have followed up you know whether they've made progress in implementing and enforcing those commitments. I should also say that you know one of the big things that transparency international and civil society groups writ large are looking for here. We don't just want the Summit for Democracy to be sort of the, you know, December 2021 edition of global convenings where folks get together and they give great speeches and folks are inspired. And then we all go back to our respective corners and nothing actually gets done. We want to make space and to really center. These commitments have been made over the last five, 10 years in plenty of different fora around the world. The United Nations, the G7, the G20. Why are we not actually accomplishing these goals? What are the obstacles to implementation? You know, why is it so tough to have uh, foreign bribery laws enforced in all but maybe half a dozen countries in the world? What are the real practical difficulties to that? And so we're pushing to make sure we're not just reinventing the wheel for the 30th time in a row, if you would, but to be having an honest, tough, productive conversation about why do we make all these promises amongst and between each other, and yet the ball's never really move down the field.
0: Oh, that's great. That, you know, I mean, just from my narrow perspective, because, I, you know, obviously I, I work on FCPA cases and global investigations. You know, one trend I've absolutely seen is the the Justice Department has formed really good partnerships with other law enforcement agencies around the world. With prosecutors, they have matured. And what I have told people that I expect to come out of this process from my own limited vantage point at DOJ is I think you're going to see even greater expansion of partnerships and cooperation among law enforcement and countries. Um, you know, there even were preliminary discussions going on with China and sharing information years ago. And uh, if those ever bear any fruit, that could have a huge impact. Um, but nonetheless, what you're talking about, though, are just even bigger principles, and that, to me, gets at the fact that the interagency process brings the State Department, brings you know, uh, uh, it brings the Treasury Department, it brings everybody together within you know the whole government. Uh, the CIA, you know, whatever the CIA or whatever, everybody that has a stake here, and uh, and that to me, there's got to be a force multiplier from this process, that's what I think. But you know, Absolutely. Uh, and I wanted to say that I think you and your organization play a big role in this, in because I think you're going to sort of bring transparency to this process. In other words, you're gonna be holding people accountable. um, And I like that because I think that's what's needed here. And I hope that you guys are gonna sort of play a big role in this process. You should be, uh, you know, whether it's behind the scenes or talking to all the participants and stuff like that uh, in trying to do this.
2: You know, my understanding of so much of the trajectory and the evolution of the conversation around fighting global corruption has been that the Western democracies, the leading economies sort of get up on their pedestals and they point to bad pockets Mm -hmm. of the world, right? And they use instruments that have been designed to reinforce that narrative. And they say, this is what corruption looks like. It looks like a developing country um, where there's an oligarchy kleptocratic class that outright embezzles from its people or relies on bribery to grow their state-owned companies or whatnot, limit their markets. But that's changing. And you know when it's reflected in this national security memo and the framing around the Summit for Democracy, when it is actually going to not only address, but hopefully dig into substantively the role that the United States and other leading economies have in allowing that corruption to perpetuate. It's not as though the Obiang family could take their assets out of Equatorial Guinea and move it around the world if there were not financial uh, systems in parts of the world (laughs) waiting and able to receive it. And you cannot just focus on the headline story about the theft without saying, what's the getaway car that these bad actors are using to be able to accomplish and to hide up their crimes? And that's exactly what the Pandora Papers revealed last week, the timing of this couldn't be any better, that the United right. States has become ground zero, the chief haven for money laundering, and being able to avoid taxes and preserve your and grow your assets indefinitely amongst the world. So that will, and be we,
0: and we, inform the and, summit. you know, but Scott, we've been behind the times on AML, or, you know, anti-money laundering. Thank goodness we're started in the right direction with the Corporate Transparency Act, uh you know the AML act and the you know which uh, included that um you know we've got a long way to go but look all you have to do is look at the i mean the most important FCPA case i think brought in the history of the FCPA was last year with Goldman Sachs and Malaysia and how mm. money was directly diverted from the benefit of the people of Malaysia to line the pockets of the you know Goldman Sachs and to line uh, and for the leaders uh, in Malaysia. So I, and, and to me, it was a great coordinated response. They're still sort of, you know, recovering money. But to me, um, the issue is there that the major bad guys were bringing the money to the U.S. And they were buying art. They were buying apartments in New York. They were doing all these things. And um, to me, it revealed again, once again, the underbelly of our uh, failure to, uh, you know, commit to AML real enforcement and beneficial ownership and, and putting in place, uh, you know, uh, systems that are going to stop this behavior. But I know I'm preaching to the choir on that. But, you know, anyways, that's my two cents. But I wanted to just sort of, so we have this executive branch activity going on. Uh, but there's still some interesting things going on. And I know you're on top of this as well in the U.S. Congress, uh, you know, even though they're not getting things done in, in certain areas, this to me is sort of a bipartisan area. Um, and what are we seeing going on in sort of in, in Congress? Uh, you've mentioned to me before that there's a, uh, there's a launch of a congressional caucus against foreign corruption and kleptocracy. That's a big deal. But tell us what's, what's happening from your perspective.
2: So I think this is one of the most exciting and yet under discussed areas of US policy right now. I mean, exactly. A bipartisan caucus came together um, this summer. It's about half Republicans, half Democrats. It's called the Caucus Against Foreign Corruption and Kleptocracy. And its mission is, you know, part information sharing to keep members who, for one reason or another, maybe they have a military or a national security or a law enforcement background. You know, uh, maybe they are sons and daughters of immigrants who had escaped authoritarian or corrupt countries. Uh, maybe they are folks who are just have worked in foreign policy. Or, you know, we even have a member, uh, Representative Fitzpatrick out of Pennsylvania, was on the FCPA enforcement unit. So a lot of different yeah on ramps for these different members of Congress, and they have seen this issue coalesce into such a top priority that now there's a caucus that is putting together legislation, that is having briefings from experts, that is really moving as one body and one force to help prioritize these issues and get them on the radar. A great example of that is that, you know while anti-corruption bills that were introduced sometimes they tended to be like a pet project of a particular member, right? They'd be mm-hmm. about one area of the world that was of particular concern or, um, you know, a sanctioning program or directive that affected one group of folks uh, or maybe just some smaller fixes that would have significant consequences, but weren't the kind of eye catching bills, like say the corporate transparency act or the anti-money laundering act of 2021 uh, that were passed last year. And so, now the caucus has really rallied behind this new bill that is trying to change the narrative and the strategy around this. It's called the Counter-Kleptocracy Act and it's basically a collection of seven anti-corruption measures all of which are bipartisan. And the idea here is to group together these bills under that broader heading. It's a great way to organize civil society and you know the anti-corruption foreign policy national security committee a community behind one effort. It's a great way to move with one piece of messaging about it. And importantly, especially when it comes to opportunities like the Summit for Democracy and other convenings, we can push uh, to make sure that all the right uh, influencers and all the right audiences are aware of this coordinated effort. And there's one single bill that would get a lot accomplished. uh, Wow, that's a great idea. It's
0: great to have one, you know, vehicle for this because what we've always seen is like several vehicles and you'd have to piece them together and try to explain it but this is great what's what's in this uh yeah when you say seven different areas what what are the the highlights
2: that we should all know about yep so if you happen to run into your member of congress in the elevator and you want to you want to talk about you know, and you got 25 seconds. The bottom line is these are all transparency, information sharing, and anti-bribery measures. So big picture, they are bills that will enhance our existing sanctions programs. They will encourage cooperation among the United States and its allies and countries whose people have been victimized by corruption when it comes to going after anti going after corruption. And it's gonna empower the United States and law enforcement to go after foreign corruption at its source. So there's seven bills, but the big themes are transparency and the availability of information, uh, bills that encourage or require the United States to work with its allies to make sure that corrupt actors are not able to exploit their um, you know, resources at home or gain entry to their country one way or the other, and the biggest piece of it, which I hope we can chat about here a bit, is called the Foreign Extortion Prevention Act. That's the one that would go after foreign corruption at its source. It would give the Department of Justice authority uh, to bring cases against foreign corrupt officials. Mm. And that's been a
0: gap in the FCPA because they use uh, enforcement. I mean, they use the AML laws now, but they, they need more tools for that. And that's is that what that's trying to get at, is how to get at the bribe demanders, the
2: bribe takers, in a sense, in the foreign governments? Exactly right. So dozens of other countries around the world have this law on the books. They criminalize both uh, the giving and receiving of bribes. The United States at this point is relatively unique in that when foreign bribery happens in different parts of the world, If a United States company goes abroad, offers a bribe or gives a bribe to a foreign official in order to win a contract or a license or any other kind of benefit, then the Department of Justice will come down on them using the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, right? But the foreign official on that side of the transaction and bribery is always a two-way street, very often, if not always, gets away scot-free. The OECD did- Absolutely. A survey on this, yes, and they found that only about 20% of the time uh, were those foreign officials brought to task by their home government. So you have this strange allotment of incentives where the only time that the U.S. government intervenes is to crack down on the U.S. company but allows this ecosystem to exist where these companies have to go into emerging markets with challenging political environments and they're just kind of left on their own. But if they slip up, you know, they'll end up being getting punished. While the foreign corrupt official who may have instigated this whole plan, who may have made it a prerequisite to doing business and put pressure on the company, doesn't have any consequences or any disincentives from that kind of behavior. Um, there are plenty of examples of this happening in the last few years, and it's something that's not unique to uh, the United States. It's something you know that a lot of leading democracies are, are struggling with. What we know right. is that when the United States puts anti-bribery laws on its books, it will enforce them. And so right. giving the DOJ, which many former prosecutors have been calling, asking for this tool, giving them this opportunity and this authority to be able to strike at the heart of the problem is something that is going to be a boon for US businesses, US workers. And that's one of the reasons it's got such a broad political tent. Of, of groups supporting it. I mean, this is a measure that is supported by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Greenpeace. I think it's great.
0: I think, wow, you never get them in the same room. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and, and
2: I, I <laughs> can a, a bigger political tent and more on-ramps for folks. I mean, uh, you know, let alone what we've heard from our chapters in important parts of the world saying, you know, we need this measure here because they may be in a in a, a country that's ruled by kleptocrats where their own law enforcement agencies just don't have the power and the independence to crack down on top-level corruption. And so they are saying we need the United States, you know, as as we do in so many other settings, to come in and disrupt that power system that they have and to be able to bring cases against these folks.
0: Yeah, that is a, that's a huge point. I think it's a big, big development. And, you know, just look at the UK Bribery Act. It goes both ways. They can prosecute both under the UK Bribery Act, and there's no rhyme or reason for the FCPA to exclude uh, the foreign official from prosecution. It's just a skewed enforcement system that way.
1: Uh, That's right.
0: So let's, I mean, we should definitely stay on top of this. I mean, this, and this caucus is just, uh, I see it as transformative in the sense of, as a means by which to educate people and then bring up bipartisan legislative ideas that can then get pushed into you know there's a moving vehicle of some sort uh, in the in the Congress, and maybe it can get tacked in. Uh, that's what I would look for so um, well one last point I wanted to raise uh, is you know there's been uh, you know the National Defense Authorization Act. Each year, you, well, you know, usually carry something important with it. Like last year, we got the AML Act uh, and the Corporate Transparency Act included in it. Um, and it's usually one of those moving vehicles. Do you see any chance of, you know, what do you see going on with the, we'll call it the NDAA for short, uh, coming up? And do we, do we see any chance of getting some of these uh, legislative ideas, you know, incorporated?
2: Absolutely. I mean, one of the best um, outcomes of the Biden administration approaching the fight against corruption as a national security issue is that the annual defense bill is really, you know, the one and only must pass bill for the U.S. government every year. Right. Right. To fund the Department of Defense and other agencies. So this is the moving train now that anti-corruption is becoming more and more understood at the highest levels of government. As a national security issue so as you mentioned last year right this is the vehicle that was able to deliver the corporate transparency act and the amla AMLA act it is now also gearing up to deliver about half a dozen new anti-corruption measures as well um the house passed its version of the ndaa just a couple weeks ago and in the text of the house ndaa Uh, Are measures that would enhance and complement our sanctions programs. The reauthorization of the Global Magnitsky Act, for example, is included in the House NDAA. Uh, There are measures that would give the president new sanction authority. There are measures on bringing transparency to the assets that have been recovered through the Department of Justice's uh, anti-corruption efforts, and to be able to illustrate to countries around the world. You know, that the United States has seized X millions of dollars of assets that ultimately belong to the people of your country. And that transparency, we hope, is going to put pressure uh, to make sure that those assets are allocated as quickly as possible back to the people who they ultimately belong to. Um, there's a bill that's been included that would reform how the United States interacts with Interpol and what we prioritize there to make sure that bad actors are not using red notices to flag anti-corruption activists or whistleblowers or journalists um, where they're trying to seek extradition for them and and punish them for exposing corruption. Um, It's a whole host of measures that have made it over the finish line, including, which has gotten a lot of attention lately, uh, a bill they're calling the Navalny 35, which would require the administration to look at 35 kleptocrats and human rights abusers that were identified by the Russian political opposition leader Alexei Navalny, and to refer them wow. for uh, global Magnitsky sanctions if they meet the criteria. So, a whole That's lot terrific. in there. And yep. now, now the case is is trying to make sure that these same bills are mirrored in the Senate NDAA. That's sort of the next step. You know, we're working with a coalition of just under a dozen civil society groups. Uh, making sure that that members are hearing that these are critical to U.S. national security and trying to make them front and center uh, as part of the Senate NDA's conversations about foreign policy and national security. So, if we're able to get it in uh, the Senate NDA, it would look really, really good. Obviously, then you have a good chance there. of of having it come
0: out in the final, you know, after they conference it somehow. So that's
2: right. Yep. And we would learn well, probably the end result of this in early December if the timeline matches up as it has before, so it could be some very good uh, i guess early early holiday present there,
0: yeah, there you go. Um, one last thing before, and I know we're, we're we're running short on time here, Scott, but one last thing um you had mentioned to me uh, earlier um, that for example, one of you've seen impacts of this sort of priority being placed. Uh, in the federal government on this anti-corruption fight and you mentioned something to me and just in case listeners uh, have any interactions with the USAID in terms of contracting or anything like that but uh, what what was that that you recently heard about in uh, at the USAID because that's a big development from my perspective.
2: So Administrator Samantha Power understands the significance of this issue and how anti-corruption work can translate into really, really positive, transformative results in important parts of the world. And we know that she has made staffing up an anti-corruption task force at USAID one of her big priorities. And so there are 10, 12, you know, a dozen folks that are being brought into USAID as part of an anti corruption task force, if you will, that are going to have their eye squarely on how can we use development assistance in order to bring new, ro- new resources to, to you know, bolster rule of law institutions, to create anti corruption legal and regulatory frameworks, to be able to support civil society organizations or, or maybe new governments that ran on an anti corruption platform. And now that they're in power, they need technical assistance uh, or direct assistance in making sure that they can deliver on those promises. And so the fact that, you know, the largest development agency in the world, which is going to give out 30 billion dollars in foreign assistance, has anti-corruption as one of its key prongs reflected not only in, you know, in policy, but now personnel, I think is really Mm -hmm. teeing up a potential game changer Because it is, at the end of the day, how the United States primarily engages on anti-corruption efforts is through our development work. And so, you know, another echoing and iteration of the fact that the Biden administration is really trying to center this work as best as it can.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. Really interesting. Scott, listen, thank you so much. Um, If listeners want to get in touch with you to, you know, follow up on any of these issues, raise some concerns with you? What's the best way uh, that they can reach you?
2: So my direct email is sgraytack at transparency.org. That's S-G-R-E-Y-T-A-K at transparency.org. And our website is us.transparency.org. You can also find us on Twitter uh, and subscribe to our newsletter through our website. Great to talk to you, Michael. It's a real treat. Oh, and Scott. To well, to elevate these issues.
0: Well, and, and thank you for the great work that Transparency International does. Uh, you guys, it's an amazing organization. And uh, thank you for all the great work you do. And and let's stay in touch. And we'd love to have you back to sort of uh, maybe, you know, once we get a feel for where things are really moving towards, uh, we'd love to get an update from you. So um, you got thank you again, Scott. Okay. All right. Thanks, Scott. Thanks thank me. you again.
1: Take care. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com. I'm so tired
3: That's so-